Welcome to this episode of Gone Medieval. I'm Matt Lewis. HS2 is a controversial rail project to provide high-speed links from London to the Midlands. As part of its work, HS2, alongside archaeologists at Infra and Fusion, have to perform archaeology all along that route. One part in the Chilterns has thrown up something absolutely incredible. This is huge. I was fortunate enough to join Dan at a secret location in Cardiff to find out more on one of the most important post-Roman, early medieval discoveries of our lifetime. You'll hear about some of the astonishing things we saw in this episode, and you can see them in Dan's documentary on History Hit TV. All of this has been under an embargo until the 16th of June, but History Hit is the place to find out more about these potentially revolutionary finds. We're going to hear first from Dan speaking to Professor Helena Hamero at the School of Archaeology at the University of Oxford. They chatted about the historical context of these finds. The 200 years after the Romans leave, the 5th and 6th century, say, they have a pretty terrible reputation. And I often think, God, if I could be born any time, it would be not in that sort of 200 year period. If you asked me, I'd say it was the worst possible time to be alive in the Isles, in Britain, in the last 2,000 years. Is that fair? I think the terrible reputation is based on a very small number of written sources that describe those centuries as absolutely apocalyptic, the end of everything, the end of the Roman world, and, you know, disaster afterwards. But what we're seeing from the archaeology, which is really quite abundant now and growing all the time, is that, you know, there's a much more gradual transformation that's taking place. And that in some parts of the country, Roman ways of doing things actually continued up to a point, you know, right through the 5th century. Sometimes even Roman ways of burying the dead, Roman pottery industries, all that sort of stuff. You know, there is an element of continuity. So we shouldn't think of it in terms of this catastrophic collapse of everything in the first half of the 5th century. So we're starting to realize that it really wasn't like that, whatever authors like Gildas might suggest. The lack of written sources, people have perhaps unfairly called the Dark Ages, because mm. that would... But their lack does presumably mean something, doesn't it? Like, why do so few source, written sources survive from that period? Yes, well, I guess you have to think about who was producing those sources. And once Britain was kind of decoupled from the Western Empire, it was sort of on its own. The bureaucrats who might have left those records, the, the religious people who might have written records, they're not producing that stuff anymore. So it does sort of go from being, in some sense, a historic period to being kind of proto-historic, with very few written sources, very few people around whose job it was to record things. Fewer priests and bureaucrats, maybe it's not the end of the world. I mean, that's not necessarily a reflection of complete terminal decline. Yeah, it's not necessarily terminal decline. It's certainly not going to be bad for everyone. But it's clear that some groups in some parts of the country did struggle. If you were living in a city or a town and you were dependent on going to a market and buying all your foodstuffs or paying some specialist to come and repair your house and all that sort of stuff, suddenly you can't do it anymore. There are no markets anymore. There's no longer a functioning system of currency. All these sorts of things are going to be pretty tough for people in that position. But, you know, then there will have been other parts of, of what we now call England where, you know, people probably carried on living much as they did before. And what about the politics? Or what about these new arrivals from across the Channel mm. and North Sea? Mm. Well, of course, we used to call this the migration period, and I think with good cause. And again, it's the written sources in the first instance that tell us that there were large-scale migrations. 
that rather went out of favor for a while, this idea that we should explain the, the big changes in southern and eastern England as being the result of migrations. But what ancient DNA especially is showing us is that people from across the North Sea did make a major genetic contribution to this country around that sort of time. And, you know, things did change. Ways of doing did change in the 5th and especially the 6th centuries. So migration clearly played a role, but it cannot explain everything. And it's, I think we can be quite confident that the majority of the people living in, let's call it lowland Britain in the 5th and 6th centuries, were descendants of the people who'd always lived here. But amongst them was a substantial, a substantial minority of people whose forebears did come from the other side of the North Sea. So we're talking about perhaps sort of elite replacement rather than sort of genocide and ethnic cleansing. Yeah, I don't think we've got evidence for ethnic cleansing. I think what we see is, as I say, a substantial influx of people over quite a long period, you know, probably a couple hundred years, maybe, maybe more. It probably didn't stop in the 7th century. Uh, coming in especially into the eastern parts of the country, so East Anglia almost certainly saw really large-scale migration. And then uh, a degree of integration and a degree, I think, of people reinventing themselves, as they often do, and reinventing their origins. So if suddenly it becomes dangerous or difficult to be a Briton, to be identified as a Briton, and we know from the law codes that Britons were in a less good social position than the rest, then you might well want to reinvent your identity and say, well, actually, I'm not a Briton anymore. I'm something else. And why are burials important for archaeologists and for all of us in understanding what's going on around here? Burials, of course, you know, the decision of where you bury your dead ancestors and how you bury them is incredibly important. It's incredibly important to social cohesion, community identity, family identity, all that sort of thing. So the decision of where you're going to bury your ancestor and how and with what is really important. And when that changes, that's saying something really quite significant. So when we do start seeing those changes in the 5th and 6th centuries, we really have to try and understand what's being communicated here. Why are these new cemeteries being established? Because with very few exceptions, that's what's happening. You'd be hard-pressed to find many Roman cemeteries that just carried on in use, unbroken use. There are a few, but not many. And that's significant, I think. And obviously we're biased towards burials, because that's often what we find, I guess. But tell me about the methods of burial, the things that people are buried with that can well, help us gain insight. Well, in the 5th and 6th centuries, the majority of people were buried clothed. So they're, they're buried with any durable kind of dress fittings that they might have been wearing at the time. And then in addition to any dress fittings, you've got grave goods. So it might be a pot, might be some weaponry, might be a glass drinking vessel, all sorts of things associated with the kinds of activities that people regarded as really important. You know, being equipped for warfare if you were an adult male. Feasting, drinking, all those sorts of things if you were, you know, at the top of the tree. That kind of thing, having access to rare imported goods, gold, glass, you know, garnets, those sorts of things that came from far away and showed that your family was well connected. Those kinds of objects were incredibly important in communicating the position of a particular family or kin group within the wider community. And I guess this cemetery shows us that there was a society of, that had achieved some longevity in this particular place. It's, we think of this period as being anarchic, of borders move, shifting around, sort of tribal borders, if you like. This suggests that there was some longevity? Absolutely. So this looks very much like an ancestral cemetery established in the 5th century, maybe even the first half of the 5th century. Some of the finds are very early. 
and it carried on in use potentially right through into the 7th. So it is an ancestral cemetery, and that's quite, that's uh, relatively common in England in this period. So you have these quite large ancestral cemeteries, which then in the conversion period, in many cases, not always, but in many cases are then replaced. They're abandoned and replaced often by somewhat smaller cemeteries elsewhere. So this looks as though it probably went out of use round about the early 7th century. And what's important about that is that, can we overlay that with our understanding of the kind of political geography of lowland Britain at the time? Well, I think it does tell us that thinking about where it was appropriate to bury your dead ancestors was changing. So you wouldn't anymore want to be associated with those you know, pre-Christian burials, those pagan burial grounds that had been used for centuries. But there then was a period where people seemed to have been a little bit uncertain about where was the best place to bury your dead. So we have far fewer burials from the 7th and 8th centuries than we have from the 5th to early 7th. They're harder to date because they don't have so many grave goods, and there just seem to be fewer of them. You don't have these big cemeteries. And instead, you get little groups of burials here and there, which again suggests that either there was a degree of uncertainty or an increased choice about what you do with your dead ancestors, until eventually, by the 10th century, pretty much everybody is being buried in Christian cemeteries associated with churches in churchyards. So Helena has given us some really useful historical context as background for these finds, but what did they actually uncover? Louis Stafford was the senior project manager, and he told me all about the moment they realised they really had found something special here. So we're here in this factory unit in Cardiff, and downstairs, you know, there's lots and lots of finds in Tupperware boxes and things like that. Probably not what most people think when they think of an archaeological storage dig site. Why are these finds in Cardiff and where did they originally come from? Well, originally they were part of an excavation that we uh, conducted for HS2 in Wendover. And so HS2, are they required to do lots of archaeology everywhere that they're going to be laying train tracks for the HS2 project? We have something called sort of preliminary work. So Normally they do a historical background or a desk-based assessment, and then they work out whether there's possibilities of historical significance along the route. And then if they've isolated a few areas or suggested that there are hotspots, then they'll go in there and do geophysics, which basically you know, looks into the ground, see what's there, and then we come through and normally the geophys will pinpoint a few areas that we want to have further investigation on. And we'll do something called evaluation trenching. So long trenches pulled with a machine and we have a look in the ground and, and we see if there's any features there that we dig them. And then after that, again, next stage is if it's particularly nice or we find sites like we've got downstairs, we'll go and do an open area excavation, which is what you would normally sort of see on the news and TV, which is large open areas. And we get to see everything in its glory. And so how long into this dig did you realise you were looking at something that wasn't what you had originally thought you were going to find? I had a brilliant supervisor of mine, Crystal, and he came running up going, I think I've got some graves. So archaeologically features are very dark things, pits or ditches or sherpas, dark features against what's undisturbed natural. And some of these were very oblong shaped and about the right size fit a person in. So we knew potentially there might be something up. So I then went and had a little look and, and did some trial holes to see whether there was human remains in them or not. Because there are protocols we have to follow when we find human remains. So first thing we did was to try and identify them. 
So little trial holes were dug in by myself and lo and behold, we found human remains, but we did find a few other unusual things in those little trial holes as well. How many bodies did you end up finding in this one location? Well, when we went to the excavation space, we found 141 in 139 graves. And what did the burials tell you about potentially who these people might have been or when they lived? Were they Christian burials? Were you able to identify the type of burial that they had? It came very quickly apparent that they were Anglo-Saxon at that point, mainly because a big indicator for that for anyone who's even a layman sort of looking at it is Anglo-Saxon glass beads and they're very identifiable. And they had an awful lot of vessels with them as well, which were clearly Anglo-Saxon. So at that point, we knew the date at least for the cemetery, but again, we're sort of digging at that point and sort of exposing it. So we can't cast too many aspersions until we do the, the, the assessment phase and get the specialist input on it. But that must have lurched your thinking sort of 500 years or a thousand years further forward. So we've gone from the Iron Age to yeah. suddenly being post-Roman, early Anglo-Saxon. Yeah, my, my money was definitely on it being Iron Age, actually, when I saw the spearhead, because it was quite a large spearhead and quite sort of a broad leaf type. And I was thinking, well, that could be Iron Age. For some reason, I didn't even clock it. It might, I said potentially Anglo-Saxon, but I was seeing sort of little copper bracelets around somebody's arm before I quickly you know, covered it up. I just thought it potentially might be Iron Age because we had so much Iron Age presence there. So obviously that's a, you know, it's not uncommon for, for Anglo-Saxon burial sites to be nowhere near where, where they're actually based or, or, you know, their settlement focus. So what time period are you thinking this site really dates to now with the Anglo-Saxon finds that were in there? It's dated at the moment, but it's quite solidly in the 5th and 6th century. But there are curated finds that are earlier, which I think are more very interesting, to be honest. So we found Roman coins with some of the burials, but we think, again, they were curated and sort of kept in circulation, and then they've gone in during the 5th and 6th century. Does it seem like the site was a, a site that was in continuous use? You say there's hints of Iron Age activity there. Does it seem like it was a site that was in constant use, or do you think perhaps it was a site that was used in the Iron Age, perhaps abandoned in the Roman times and used as a cemetery in the Anglo-Saxon period? Yeah, definitely. The, the Iron Age point, there's a massive settlement there. There's lots of Iron Age, well, roundhouses are definitely there, but there's an awful lot of domestic occupations. So there's pits and pits and pits and pits and postals and postals, and it's quite hard to sort of determine whether they're structures or whether it's just roundhouse and roundhouse and roundhouse. And a lot of the pottery, and there was kilos and kilos of it, was, was all Iron Age. And then in the Roman period, it seems that that occupation sort of stops and the Roman period, they potentially moved southward or further away, but they're still moving along this sort of hollowway that's very indentured into, cemented into the landscape. And then from that point onwards, it seems to just sort of go out of use. They're still using it as a through route, but any kind of graveyard site, occupation site, domestic site, whatever you want to call it, it seems to sort of return to almost an agricultural setting before the Anglo-Saxons just turn up and there's no rhyme or reason for it apart from it's on the bluff of a hill and it's overlooking Wendover and visually it would have stood out quite a lot it would have had good viewpoints across the Chilterns both that into the Chilterns valleys and down into the plain. So there's perhaps the possibility that this was somewhere important to a local community who wanted to be able to see it from where they were so they may not have been living on the site but they would have wanted to see where their their ancestors were resting. Yeah, yeah, and there's some evidence for these graves potentially being marked, um, potentially with little kettens of flint. So there is some evidence that, that, w that we've seen in, when we were excavating that that might have been the case. So they would have had, not all of them necessarily, but they were definitely marked. And I think the other interesting thing that you mentioned was the continuity in the use of items that were there. So there's some Roman coins and things like that that are sort of repurposed and reused. So I think we 
quite often have this idea of history as being sort of these hard stops, the Romans leave and everything Roman stops. And then at some point later, the Anglo-Saxons begin. And this seems to fall somewhere in the bit in the middle. So there are Roman things that are still being used by the local population that have sort of been repurposed as jewellery or are still used as, as currency or something valuable or important. Does that suggest a kind of cultural continuity? Because I think we're fifth and sixth century, we're hearing a gap in our knowledge and our understanding of what was going on in England at the time. Does this site tell us anything about that period? It hasn't awful lot that can come out of that site to tell us about it. Not only, you know, there's a lot of contention about whether there was a mass population that came over from Europe and basically invaded Britain, or whether it was sort of a, a slow influx, or it might have been more along the lines of the local populace sort of taking on European ideals. With the amount of skeletons we've got and, and how preserved they are, we can start to look at stuff like uh, DNA analysis and strontium analysis, and we can actually start to identify whether these people are moving around or whether they are actually a local populace. Until we get more assessment and analysis, uh, it's a bit of conjectural debate, but it has the potential to give us so much insight to this local population, who it was, where they came from, or whether they were there and adopted new ideals that had, that had poured over. Certain things with obviously the Roman curated finds, uh, they're quite interesting. And there's a lot of, uh, so the tweezer sets and the toiletry sets are a Roman ideal or something that started in the Roman period. But obviously the Romans were in Europe as well. So it doesn't necessarily suggest great continuity. It's just the ideas are still continuing on. But the curated Roman uh, finds, coins at least, you can't say whether they were kept because they were Roman or kept because they were just purely silver, because obviously that denomination had gone out of, of use for, you know, 100 years or so. Yeah, well, so. they were just valuable enough to hang on to for yeah, some reason. Yeah, the ideals are completely different, and you don't know, you know, it might not have been the individuals, it might have been their family members or, or the community when they buried them, they wanted them to have these particular finds. And grave goods don't necessarily reflect the person buried, they reflect the community burying them and their ideals of that person. I think it's interesting that some of those particularly those late Roman finds, are potentially, you know, 100, 200 years old by this point and must have been something like a family heirloom that's being put in a grave with someone. So that must be a, a process of the community burying this person to, to put something incredibly valuable and meaningful for, for the family in there and to lose it forever to this grave. Yeah, definitely. A lot of the items they've got, so I think... Uh especially the military items, like your swords. I mean, in, in theory, they're an awful lot of money. And uh, some of the glass vessels as well, you know, they are showing at least status within the community, if not themselves. And you do lose them out of circulation. So it is showing that there are high status individuals, but not all of them had burial items with them. And so why is this site quite so important? What other discoveries could we compare it to? How important is it to our understanding of this period? For me, specifically, it's, it's an amazing site for the spectrum of the population that it encompasses. So we have a lot of male and female. We have martial, we have ladies with fine wear and toiletry sets, like we said. And we've got children, and children are quite often absent in Anglo-Saxon cemeteries. But it's unusual that those children have also got grave goods with them. But we've also got people without grave goods. So what we've got is, it looks like a very good cross-reference of the local community both poor, rich, martial, non-martial, young and old. For an archeologist, that's your dream. That's giving you a complete snapshot of the population during that period. So last question, I guess, if I could pop you in a TARDIS and send you back 1500 years, what would you want to know about that site? What would you want to find out? 
what they did with the buckets. There's an awful lot of buckets there. I want to know whether they were using them as uh, something other than what we use buckets for, because they're quite small. I wonder whether they were drinking out of them or whether they just carried their, their nicest finds in them. It's, it just seems to be that that's one of those items that's quite enigmatic and nobody really knows exactly what they were using them for. To understand more about what we can learn from these human remains, I spoke to osteologist Rose Callis. So we've got 141 sets of human remains that have come out of this site. Were you able to sex them all? Are they fairly evenly spread between men and women? Are there some that you couldn't identify? Do we have lots of age ranges? Is there, is there a, a variety of people in this site? So at assessment stage, we don't try and age, do age estimations and sex determinations of all the individuals, because that takes a lot of time and that's part of the analysis process. So we took a subsample of 28 and I did a slightly more in-depth analysis. And you can only determine sex of adults, but you can determine age or estimate age from you know, any skeleton. So, so yes, yeah, so I took 28 and from that, uh, there was a mix of both male and female, and there was a mix of juvenile and infant. But yeah, there was a, a wide range. And if there was 141 bodies in 139 graves, mm. there was two sort of shared graves, is that right? Was that a, a man and a woman potentially in the same no, grave? No, these or? were infants with adults. So we had one very interesting one. It was an adult, I'm not going to determine the, the sex, that had an infant in the crook of their arm. Quite nice, but also quite tragic. So Yeah, so it might have looked like it was perhaps their child or they died at the same time as yeah, their child. Yeah, well exactly, so that's what, so with scientific analysis further on down the line we can do DNA analysis to work out if, if there is a hereditary link there. And we can try and do isotopic analysis as well to try and work out their, their diet and their origin or mobility. So yeah, we can do lots of amazing scientific things down the line where we can try and answer that question. And is there lots of evidence that tells us about what some of these people may have died for? I think there's one that sticks out as a fairly <laughs> obvious cause of death. So if you could tell us a little bit about that, that's fantastic. But then beyond that, is there much evidence of how these people died? Well, it's very tricky because we're only given the bones, literally the bones. So unless there's actual trauma on the bones or we can look at the pathology and see if there's any infectious diseases or, yeah, basically you're looking at the paleopathology. So some illnesses, diseases and trauma will leave traces within the bones and others won't. So we have one in particular where we found an iron sharp blade that had been embedded into the base of the spine, so one of the lumbar vertebra. And we could work out by the positioning and where it was embedded in that particular bone, it was embedded in the body. We can hypothesize that this particular individual was stabbed from the left-hand side from the front. So rather than being stabbed in the back. And we don't know why or who, you know, did that, but um, we can certainly say that that's a cause of death because it was, the blade was left in the individual when they were buried. And I guess that plays very much into our view of this period as being a, a warrior culture. But is it strange to leave that blade in some... So this person must have been buried with this spearhead or, or blade left inside their body. Why would it not have been removed, do you think? I mean, it, it was embedded very deep into this particular individual because it penetrated the bone. But also in terms of uh, warrior culture, this is the only individual that has evidence for a sharp force trauma. And we don't have any blunt force trauma evidenced on the bones either. So um, there doesn't seem to have been 
a lot of conflict that we can, you know, judging by the bones, this kind of idea of a warrior culture within this particular community, particular cemetery, there isn't a lot of evidence for that that we can see in the bones. Yeah. So but why, why, why they left it in, in the body is um, unknown. I mean, it, they could have died instantly from it. And then instead of extracting, they buried this individual kind of soon after. So what can these graves and the contents of them and these bodies tell us about the status of these people? How they lived, what they did, were they high status or were they ordinary people? A majority of the burials from the site contained artefacts that um, are what we think are of higher status. So this is a higher status in death, which is likely going to be a status in life as well. So that helps us infer kind of a status of these people. But then also from the bones, we can have a look at paleopathology of the bones. Um, so, so what do we mean when we say paleopathology, sorry? So any kind of signature that is left on the bones by disease or trauma or dental, dental disease, anything that is left on the bone that isn't naturally part of the bone. So anything that the person might have suffered with in life that might show up on their, their skeletal remains that you can still find today? Absolutely, like arthritis, you might have bony growth from arthritis, dental disease, I think I mentioned calculus, um, gingivitis, where you can see the gums receding, so the bone recedes, or any trauma, like I mentioned earlier about the sharp horse trauma. So you might be able to work out who had Anglo-Saxon bad breath. <laughs> In this population, actually, yes, because there was a lot, a high degree of a, a lot of calculus. So yes, there would have been some smelly breath. <laughs> what tests are the bones likely to go through next? What more can we learn from them? How would we assess sort of DNA, isotope analysis to, can we work out where these people might have come from, whether they are indigenous English people or whether they were sort of remnants of the Romans or whether they are incoming sort of Saxon population from somewhere else? Yes, um, so we use stable isotope analysis, which is most widely available, but also ancient DNA analysis is becoming far more accessible and cheaper. So lots of people are doing that as well. But um, through analysing carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, sulphur, strontium, these stable isotopes, yeah, we can work out mobility, people's mobilities and places of origin um, and also their, their diet in their use to adulthood. So from that, we can try and work out where these people came from. Interesting. So we can tell what they ate and where they must have eaten that to work out whether they a broad understanding of it, yeah, so not specifics, but um, yes, yeah, so stable isotope analysis can help us understand where these people originated from, if they migrated from somewhere which isn't indigenous, as you say, whether from the continent or even other places in the UK, um, it gives us an idea, or certainly we can assess that. It's fascinating how this site is, is filling in a gap in history for us, so this is a part of history that we really don't know anything about. And these, these 141 individuals may well be able to tell us a lot more than we already know and start to fill in some of those gaps. I guess for my last question then, if I could pop you in the TARDIS, I'm asking everybody this, if I could pop you in the TARDIS and send you back 1500 years to that site when it's alive, what would you most want to see there? What would you most like to understand from that day? Well, I would really like to know what happened to the individual who had the a sharp force trauma. I'd like to know who did it, why, that kind of narrative around there because it's um, very enticing. <laughs> Tells us a lot about you, I think. I know, yeah. I like a murder mystery. <laughs> <laughs>
Hello everyone, James Rogers here, the host of the Warfare podcast by History Hit. I'm a war historian who works with the UN, NATO and governments around the world. Twice a week, every week, we bring you the defining wars of history and learn about the history of emerging wars. The passengers and crew of 149 were trapped trapped and delivered into the hands of Saddam Hussein. We hear from the veterans who served. Guards there would grab a machine gun and fire at us as we went over and could see the splinters flying in all directions. Through to world-leading historians providing context to understand current conflicts. Finland obviously couldn't join NATO, which makes the two Finnish leaders' statements about Finland deciding for itself whether it will join NATO. That makes those statements even more important. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hits on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us on the front lines of military history. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. As controversial as it may be, the work for HS2 has made this discovery possible. I spoke to Dr. Rachel Wood, who told me a bit more about their involvement. For some people, HS2 is still quite a controversial subject, but is it fair to say that we would never have found this site or, or other sites like it if it wasn't for the fact that HS2 was happening? Absolutely. So when the route was designed, there were a few key sites along the way that we did know of. Uh, Fleet Marston Roman Town, um, St Mary's Old Church near Stoke Mandeville, we knew they were there. They've still held their own surprises but there are patches of the countryside where we just had no idea what was there. It was a green field or, or you know, a ploughed field. 
And this site is certainly one of those we were just not anticipating and there was no indication there of what we were going to find when we started the work. So it must have been a pleasant surprise when you suddenly found some interest in that field that I think, as Louis mentioned, started off thinking it might have been Iron Age, but turns out to be from actually a very significant period of history. How do you go about working on that site and developing that site? What's the process for, for taking that green field and turning it into this cemetery that we can learn a lot about? So HS2 have a slightly different approach in that the, the aim is not to dig everything because that you're not necessarily learning something new from excavating yet another field system. So the entire route has been subjected to geophysical survey and that's essentially like x-raying the ground. And from that, we can see, as Louis said, hot spots or key areas where they have potential. So that goes on to the next stage, which is called trial trenching. And they're long, thin strips that are opened uh, by a machine in the ground and they cover a percentage of the field. And that is a bit like keyhole surgery. You get to have a little sneak peek. Is it actually archaeology? Are there any objects there? What kind of archaeology are we talking about? Is it industry? Is it occupation? Is it burials? And from that, we then decide whether or not we need to move it on to the more open area, final phase mitigation, we call it, where the, you know, a large area is opened, all the topsoil and subsoil comes off and we excavate all of the archaeology there. With this site, the geophysics showed up what looked like a square enclosure. That there's, we thought there was a missing medieval hospital in the area somewhere. We've not found any evidence of that. And there was hints of sort of a trackway and maybe a bit of pits and things. And that's what showed up in the trial trenching as well. But we did have a hint of a few burials, as, as Louis was saying, from the trial trenching. But even then, we could not have anticipated that it was going to be 141 people. And we certainly could not have anticipated the amazing objects that they were buried with either. And so what do those tracks and trenches and the, the roundhouse evidence that was there, what did that tell us about the site before it was a cemetery? Does it seem to have been in use for a long time? Can we tell what it might have been used for? So the first thing that appears on the site seems to be um, this trackway. And we're in an area that's near something called the Icknield Way, which is a well-known prehistoric routeway kind of running across the country. And there's obviously lots of little offshoots and trackways that come off that main throughfare. It's possibly one of those offshoots. It's in a natural dip in the Chilton, so a natural kind of routeway through those hills. And then you get the Iron Age pitting and occupation that goes alongside it. So there appears to be some people living on this hillside, just down from the brow of the hill, you know, a little bit sheltered from the wind maybe, but with a great view over the Chilterns and the Aylesbury Vale. And then that goes out of use and we move into this, this period where nothing else is happening there other than the cemetery. But again, that cemetery also has that fantastic view over Aylesbury Vale. So it seems quite deliberately chosen in its proximity to the routeways, um, but also the view across the land as well. I think it's interesting to think about people sighting that house there. And as you say, you can imagine it being a little bit out of the wind, but with a great view. That's a very human thing, isn't it? It's the way we would choose where we want to live today. It feels like a decision we would make today. It's very human. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I really like about this site is that a lot of the elements, it, it's amazing and fantastic and, and pretty astounding on the face of it. But actually, a lot of the elements are all really human. So we have things like tweezers and personal grooming equipment, combs, but also decisions. And that, that's for the Anglo-Saxon people from the cemetery. But even in the non-burial archaeology, we're still seeing those quite human decisions being made. And it, it's no different to what we think today. 
And what do you think the finds that were with the people tell us about these people? We've heard mention that they were potentially quite high status. As you've just said then, some of them are quite personal things that people have taken with them. What do you think these finds tell us about the kind of people that were buried there and the people who buried them? So you can see the kind of monetary cost that goes into these objects. They, they take a lot of skill and a lot of craft, like craftsmanship to make. They're not quick, you know, easy pots that are thrown together. They're highly decorated and shaped in very specific ways. There's all the weaponry, which would have had, a, you know, quite a big value as well. But the most interesting thing for me with all burial grounds and things like that is to think that the objects people are buried with actually reflect more about the mourners themselves. So the the people who are still alive, attending the funeral, they are the ones ultimately who choose what goes into the grave with that person, even that per if that person has expressed a wish to be buried with their shield or something like that. It's ultimately the people left alive who make that decision at the point of burial. So the objects tell us a lot about how these people were thought of by their community and their families and their friends around them. Is that reflected in the fact that some of them have shield bosses with them, so they may well have been thought of a, a martial figure within the community, but also that some people have... I mean, what does tweezers tell us? Someone like their eyebrows to look nice all the time? I'm not too sure what the tweezers tell us about that person, if I'm honest. But the, the shields are also quite an interesting one to pick up on because, yes, that person, you know, you can assume that person knew how to use the shield and probably lived quite a martial um, lifestyle. That's all an assumption. But equally, um, the purpose of a shield is for protection. So they can be a bit of a weapon as well in that you can barge people out of the way, but they're primarily to protect you. So it could be that the act of putting the shield in the grave also carried some protection for the deceased through into whatever afterlife was believed in. And it, it could have some sort of protective element to it as well. What more is being done at this site? In terms of HS2's process now, what happens to, to all of these great finds that we have here? Uh, will any more work be done at the site? Will any more work be done with these remains? So all of the site work is complete, um, but the work does not stop there. Um, we have been doing the uh, first stage kind of assessment of all of the objects. Our first job is to stabilise everything so nothing deteriorates. Obviously, it spent a lot of time in the ground. It's now out of the ground, exposed to light and oxygen. We have to make sure everything, everything is safe. Um, and we do sort of a, a first level assessment. So what do we have? How much of it do we have? And what as a whole assemblage can this tell us? So what research questions might we be able to ask about it? Um, what techniques, the objects and the bones and things would be suited to be subjected to? So things like C14 or isotope analysis. Um, so we're, we're doing that first stage assessment now and then there is a further stage of HS2 um, analysis where everything from um, up and down the route will go through a much more detailed specialist analysis phase where all those extra um, tests and scientific dating and things like that can be done and that will only add um, to the picture that we have now. I think it's fascinating to think that this modern technology progress um, of HS2 could answer a lot of our questions about the past that we so far know very little about. It's kind of a weird juxtaposition, isn't it, to think that, that looking to the future is actually telling us a lot more about the past than we knew before. Absolutely, and, and HS2, it, it's obviously a controversial um, scheme, but 
for archaeologists, it's a fantastic opportunity to get a great um, look at a, a large kind of swathe through the countryside. And it it's born out of the construction industry and the laws around them requiring archaeological work to be done. Without the work on HS2, this site and many others up and down the route wouldn't have necessarily have been found. And it's also um, providing the opportunity to do all of that further work and to um, to put it through all, all of those further scientific testing and things like that. And um, ultimately, it's HS2's intention that all of the objects from everywhere along the route will end up in all the various local museums up and down the route as well. That's something very much to look forward to. And so how important do you think this site and these finds are in the grand scale of, of kind of Anglo-Saxon archaeology? People talk about Sutton Hoo and the Staffordshire Horde. Where would you rate these discoveries alongside those? So Sutton Hoo is kind of, um, you know, 7th, 8th, 9th centuries, and we're the 5th, 6th century here at this site. But you could say that this site is um, possibly one of the most important Anglo-Saxon discoveries since Sutton Hoo and the Staffordshire Horde. Because of the wealth of information, we are going to be able to learn about um, the, the culture, you know, the economy, the trade, um, and, but also the people. Where have they come from? You know, how has that helped change um, culture in this part of Britain from, you know, moving from the Roman period through this kind of intermediary couple of centuries between the Roman period and the more sort of defined Anglo-Saxon culture that you see at places like Sutton Hoo. I think it's so exciting to think that this could prove to be a missing piece of a jigsaw in our understanding of that timeline of British history. It could just slot something into place and radically change our understanding, you know, if there was a real historical King Arthur, this is the period he's in because we don't know anything about it. It's that post-Roman period uh, and we don't know how the Romans left, who filled the space between, how and when did the Saxons arrive? And to think that this site could help to, to fill that gap for us is incredibly exciting. Absolutely. We have um, quite a wealthy population here, you know, a high status one, as we've talked about. And, you know, it, the Roman administration leaving Britain left obviously the power vacuum, so we'll be looking at these people are the ones who maybe filled, started to fill that power vacuum, starting to learn whether or not they came over from somewhere on the continent maybe, um, or whether they were um, you know, British people or people who were already here, um, filling those roles and taking on those responsibilities. And yeah, it's going to be a really interesting um, site to take forward through all of that further research that we can do. And there are so many questions that we can ask and at least start to get the answers for um, from this amazing site. And so I guess my last question I'm asking everybody, if I could pop you in the TARDIS and we could spin back 1500 years to this site, what would you most like to know from when this was a live site? What would you most like to see or understand? I'm most fascinated by the um, the, the processes that went into the burials. So, you know, you, you attend a funeral. These days, you know what to expect. There's certain things that happen and certain things that you and the, the mourners and the family do and certain things that are said. I'd be really interested to sort of almost attend an Anglo-Saxon funeral and see what that meant to the people involved and uh, but also to just, just sort of take someone aside and ask about all these Roman objects where they got them from and what did they, were they just useful things found on the ground or did they ascribe, you know, further meaning to them beyond that? And lastly, we had to get our hands on the cool stuff, right? 
I mean, I'm going to have to describe it to you. You can see all of this fantastic stuff in Dan's documentary on History Hit TV. But here's me with Yoan McCarthy, the fine specialist, to tell us all about those items that came out of the grave as we do our best to describe them to you while I completely lose my mind touching 1,500-year-old artefacts. Hi, Owen. Thank you for joining us. We're standing here in a factory unit in Cardiff on an industrial estate surrounded by Tupperware boxes full of some of the most interesting things I've ever seen. What's your part in all of this wonderful dig and finds? Okay, so I'm a project assistant here at Red River Archaeology, and uh, my specialism is in early Anglo-Saxon archaeology. So I was lucky enough to be privileged to work on a lot of the finds we have from Wendover. And yeah, it's been a real pleasure. So this has all fallen right into your sweet spot. <laughs> it has indeed, yeah. Fantastic. And one of the most interesting finds that we've talked about is this skeleton that was found with a spear lodged in his vertebrae. So what do we know about other weapons and, and military aspects to some of these burials? What other objects have come out of the ground? Weaponry is often a key aspect of early Anglo-Saxon furnished inhumations. By far the most common kind of weapon that we have in early Anglo-Saxon graves are spears. And just over here, we have two very, very nice spears that were discovered in graves here at Wendover. And you can see they're beautifully preserved. The one I'm currently holding has a kind of leaf shape to its blade, which it looks very nice, but it's actually designed to open some pretty nasty wounds when it's used. I was gonna say, that's gotta be, what, 40 centimeters long? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's the largest spear we had as well in, in length. Having that thrust at you would be a fairly scary experience. Yes, yes, indeed, indeed. And of course, the one next to it as well is also quite long and very pointy, but significantly narrower. And that's another kind of spear that we do find in Anglo-Saxon contexts. And do we know why they're different? Are they designed to cause different wounds or to perform different functions? There is a little bit of that going on. I mean, obviously a narrower spearhead is going to be better at getting in between certain types of armor, but armor wasn't that prevalent in this early Anglo-Saxon period anyway. So much more leaf-bladed ones like this could easily get through weaker armor and cause much more severe injuries. There is an issue of evolution that's going on here as well. So often these blades start coming out wider and then uh, develop flanges, if you will, or wings either side of the blade, which eventually move into the center of the blade and the blade itself becomes almost diamond-shaped towards the end of the 6th century. So there is also a pattern of evolution of the form of these spearheads oh, as well. So we're sort of looking at weapon development here. Yeah, yeah, a little bit, yeah. And they're, I mean, I won't to say they look crusty because they've been in the ground for 1,500 <laughs> years, but they look a kind of bit of rusty. Is this just the, the natural perishing of the metal? Yeah, it's concretion is what we would say. What we've got here is a mix of uh, oxidized rust along with the natural geology of the site. You've got a mixture of clay and chalk really there that unfortunately cakes its way onto the material, especially with these iron objects. And it can be quite difficult to remove without damaging the iron object itself. It has to be done very carefully. I will stop saying crusty and start saying concretion because <laughs> yeah. it does look like concrete. They it do look does, like a piece of concrete. And it feels like it too. There is that uh, to consider as well, though, is that these are the weapons that went in the grave. And there is a bit of disagreement amongst archaeologists whether the weapons we actually find in Anglo-Saxon graves actually represent the same kind of sets that they would actually use in war or whether it's more of a 
symbolic or what how they want to remember this individual rather than necessarily the weapons they might have used in a fight. So there is that to consider at the same time. We can't just presume. Could be something a bit more ceremonial about this rather than it being practical. Indeed, indeed. And we'll discuss that with our next object. So we're going to talk next about this fantastic object, which is a large Anglo-Saxon sword. Oh, wow. And it is, I mean, how long is that, do we know? It's uh, around about a metre, I think. Pretty thick blade as well. Again, looks like, you know, it still comes to a, a fair bit of a, a point. Yeah, yeah. It seems incredibly well preserved. Yeah, and you can see actually here in the concretion, we actually may have bits of the scabbard of the sword actually preserved. Uh, you can see it here and also these parts by here. And would that have been leather or wood? Or? Uh, something to that effect, yes. It needs a more detailed analysis to tell fully what's going on there, but... Uh, and, and it's missing its handle and pommel or anything like that as well. Would that have, yeah. have been something that would have perished? Possibly. If the handle was made out of wood or bone or something like that, then yes. Also, there's some instances where we've seen the fittings of Anglo-Saxon swords, the really nice bits, especially if they were gilt or particularly shiny bronze or something like that, had been stripped away. So that's a possibility as well. But in this case, I'd be more inclined to say it's probably like a wooden handle that's rotted away. It seems a bit off to send someone to the afterlife with a sword that's missing its handle because that was a bit too posh <laughs> to let indeed. You But coming back to what we were just saying about the fact that the dead don't bury themselves, uh, the uh, mourners do, and this is something that archaeologists often talk about, the agency of mourners and uh, how they want to remember somebody, what things were important to that person and what's important to remember about that person. How do you create that image of them in the afterlife by what you deposit with them in the grave? And swords are particularly interesting from this point of view because obviously they would have been expensive artifacts to own and maintain. And it's thought that a lot of sword-wielding individuals may not have actually bought or uh, commissioned a sword uh, themselves. They may have actually been given it as a gift. And we know from Anglo-Saxon literature, like Beowulf, for example, that gift-giving was extremely important to Anglo-Saxon society. And expensive objects like fine jewellery and really nice swords might have been given as gifts from a lord to their retainer. It's a mark of a social bond that is, at the same time, political, economic, and ritualized. So... It perhaps, if a person is buried with a sword like this, it may represent something to do with that specific social bond or how important that was to that deceased person. And we've got the next two boxes. We've got a collection of things which I hesitate to say look like something Madonna might have worn in the 1990s. <laughs> what are these two things here? So what we have here is we have two shield bosses. And these are the central elements of an Anglo-Saxon shield. Obviously, it would go in the center of the shield and your hand would go inside the shield boss holding a handle. And you can actually see next to these, we have small pieces of corroded iron, which are actually the remains of the handle, which would have gone behind the shield boss. And the shield bosses, you can see one of them in particular has a large spike coming out of the top of it. Now, the shield isn't just a, a defensive object, it's also a weapon. It's a, it can be an offensive object too. And if you bashed somebody with the spike on this, it could quite easily do them a nasty. Yeah, so, this, so this is about 10 centimetres across uh, and it, it, it probably stands up about 10 centimetres high altogether. Yeah. So we've got a, a sort of flat round disc and then this raised boss on top of it that, that comes to a spike. And I guess the rest of the shield would probably have been, again, wood 
or perhaps covered in leather that would have perished and not survived. So these are just the bits that... Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. These are the bits which uh, the soil conditions allowed to be preserved. And the other one we have here is a bit flatter, but larger in area. And uh, you can see it's been decorated with uh, silvered discs around the outside of the boss as well. And we know that the Anglo-Saxons really did like decorating their shields quite a bit. And it's thought that the Anglo-Saxons may have thought they were somehow adding to the protective qualities of the shield by decorating it. And they're, they're sort of, are, are they coins maybe? They look the size of maybe, you they know, They do look like coins, but they, uh, they are not. They're, they're just discs. And their sole purpose there is really to be shiny. And to, if, you're, if you're facing your opponent across the battlefield and they've got nice shiny shield, then uh, perhaps your opponent is going to think, oh, that person's got nice gear and quite wealthy. He's probably killed a few guys in a battle before. Maybe I won't, maybe I won't tangle with him. You could be literally uh, terrified rich. Yes. So rich that you can terrify your enemy into not wanting to fight you. So aside from all of these examples of military goods that came out of the graves, what else was discovered at this site? Well, of course, uh, the kind of martial goods are very nice, but they're not the main story, really. I mean, we do have that uh, one skeleton with sharp force trauma, but that's the only skeleton with sharp force trauma at Wendover. The main story, I think, from a lot of the finds that we're getting is one of a prosperous, dynamic community that's establishing itself in a new landscape. They're living in different ways and speaking different languages and having different religious beliefs, uh, very different to the way they were even a hundred years prior. These weren't Christian burials, were they? No, no, these are, these are pre-Christian burials. Uh, the Anglo-Saxons had their own pre-Christian religion uh, with a similar pantheon to uh, what you would recognize of the Old Norse religion in the, in, in the later Viking Age. And much like those Viking Age burials, they like to send them off to the afterlife with lots of goodies. And uh, we've got quite a few of them here in front of us. This is one of my favorites here. This is what we would call an accessory vessel. Now, these type of ceramic urns might be used to contain cremations, but there's a general trend away from cremations to inhumations, to burials, across the course of the 5th and 6th centuries. And a lot of communities who previously practiced cremation continued placing urns in the grave of the deceased after moving to inhumation as And do you think that was maybe part of a, a tradition or yeah. a concern that there ought to be an urn there? Yeah. Or uncertainty yeah. about whether burial or cremation is the right thing to do? It's, it's hard to say for sure, but there's definitely a feeling of a continuing tradition there. And uh, as you can see with this one I'm holding, it's, it's highly decorated. It's a very beautiful pot. It has both stamped and incised decorations on it. It's got these lovely incised lines, some going vertical, others diagonal. And these lovely little stamps that look like little hot cross buns. And in fact, that's what we actually technically call these type of stamps. We call them hot cross bun stamps. The urn itself is footed and it's got three horns, we call them, these appendages that sort of stick out from the sides. And this one is very interesting as well for another reason. It has a twin, which is actually in Salisbury Museum. And the decoration on that pot is so similar to this one, we think they were probably made by the same potter. 
We don't actually know where the Salisbury one is from either because it turned up in an antiquarian's collection in the 19th century and eventually made its way to Salisbury Museum, whereas this one was found on site at Wendover. So perhaps this one can tell us some more information about the Salisbury pot. Fascinating joining dots up, but it's so well preserved as well, so beautifully decorated and well preserved considering it went into the ground 1500 years ago. Indeed, and it came out almost whole. Must be an archaeologist's dream. Yeah, indeed, indeed. We have various other things as well from the site which give us a more intimate insight into Anglo-Saxon life. Among my favourite really are the cosmetic products we have. So we're looking right here at an antler comb, uh, very beautiful. Uh, it's got a, a body with little needle-like, uh, what do you call teeth for a comb, don't you? With needle-like teeth extending from a central plate. It's recognised, I mean, it looks something like a modern knit comb. Yes, yes, it, it, it does, sort of. And uh, So you have that, you know, you use it on your nice hair or your, or your big scraggly beard. You know, less scraggly if you're combing it. Yes, indeed, yeah. <laughs> what we have here is a pair of highly decorated uh, copper alloy tweezers. So you can see, uh, the, the, I mean, they look Absolutely exactly recognisable like. as tweezers you would go and buy from the shop indeed. today. Indeed, and I actually have little doubt that if you did clean out some of the... Uh, mud that's currently uh, stuck in between the tweezers that you could probably actually still use them to tweeze stuff. I mean, they wouldn't be very effective, but they'd work. But they still um, look quite decorated as well. Yes, uh, they have these lovely ring and dot ornaments going up the side of the tweezer, and, and that's very, very pretty. We also have a toiletry set. And these, um, the Romans were also very fond of these too, uh, but the Anglo-Saxons used them also. And here we have one. There's a, uh, a small copper alloy suspension ring with two sharp pick-like uh, uh, implements coming off the ring and one uh, that ends in a small spoon-like appendage. That's actually an earwax spoon. Uh, so you put it in your ear and use it to, to clean out your Is that ears. better or worse than cotton buds? We're not supposed to use cotton No, buds. it's not very good for you in case you do yourself some damage, but, you know, I suppose it depends how dirty your ears are. Really. And, would, and would the picks be something like toothpicks? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, something like that. And uh, lastly, amongst the cosmetic implements, we have what is essentially a makeup tube. So this is, a, this is what we call a cosmetic tube. And what you'd have inside here is... Um, uh, a substance, usually uh, we call it coal, so it's a uh, K-O-H-L, it's, a, it's a, a, a substance from, usually from North Africa that's quite dark and powdery. It, it's used in non-cosmetic products as well. It would be in this small copper alloy tube, and in the tube would be a tiny little wooden stick, which you'd then pull out, and it would be like a, almost like a, a modern mascara wand or eyeliner pencil or something like that you could then use to apply the coal or other dark substance to your, to your face. Fantastic. So amongst all of these, we can see a military aspect to it, but we can also see the very everyday the way the Anglo-Saxon, the early Anglo-Saxons thought about themselves. They took care in their appearance and they took care in items that had potentially been in their family for some period if they if they existed from the Roman time. Indeed. So this really gives us a window on their whole approach, their whole outlook, their whole society, hopefully. Yeah, and it's fascinating, really. It, it, geographically, looking at this area we're talking about, Buckinghamshire, Eastern Oxfordshire, I mean, this is the home turf of uh, a sort of um, entity, political entity that exists in this area during the 5th and 6th centuries, a sort of tribal unit called the Yewise. And the Yewise will later expand south and west across the Thames into places like Wiltshire and Hampshire and basically become the foundation for the Kingdom of Wessex, 
and by extension, the Kingdom of England. And so in a way, looking at stuff like this is really looking at some of the foundation stones of England as a nation. I find that fascinating. It's absolutely incredible to be surrounded by these items. And so last question, I'm asking everybody this, if I could pop you in a TARDIS and spin you back 1500 years to this site when it was a live active site, what would you most like to see or discover or be able to understand? Ooh, oh, that's a very difficult question. Um, I think I probably like to go into the purse of one individual that had these lovely silver discs in and to see whether they were actually in fact a necklace or whether they were free hanging shield shaped discs. Because as you can see, these silver discs look like a shield. And uh, that actually could be quite important. If they're part of a necklace, then that's very important too, because it means that these are quite old. If they're not part of a necklace, it could mean that these shield discs, scutiform discs we call them, could have some religious meaning potentially, like a protective amulet or something. And I'm so curious to find out which, and I guess I'll probably never know the answer, but if I could travel back in time, I definitely would. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. And it's fantastic to be surrounded by these and to, I think, just be beginning to understand this site a bit better and what it can tell us about the missing story of England's past. Oh, indeed, there's a lot more work to be done and this site is so significant, it really deserves all the attention it gets. It's been so exciting to be able to bring you this breaking news today and for History Hit to be right at the forefront of this kind of groundbreaking discovery. If you need any more reason to sign up to History Hit's streaming service, then there's a full documentary with Dan there so you can see all these incredible things that we've been trying to explain for you. I can't emphasise enough how exciting it was to be part of this and how much it might revolutionise our understanding of a period in British history we just know next to nothing about. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.